If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This podcast is part of the Podcast Arcade Network. Hello, I am Randy Andrews, and today I've got Darren and Ruth Sutherland from the Trekker Talk podcast and the Rad Adventure Network on my podcast today, and we're going to be talking about Jason and the Argonauts from 1963. We'll talk about the background, the cast, the amazing special effects by Ray Harryhausen, and we'll get into some of the after effects of this film and how it affected uh, permanent pop culture. So that's all coming up today on Soundtrack Alley. Randy Andrews, and I am with uh, Ruth and Darren Sutherland from Trekker Talk and Xenozoic Tales, uh, the uh, podcast about the Cadillacs and dinosaurs and the comic of Trekker. Uh, It's good to have you on the show. Thanks so much. We're happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Randy. We really enjoy your show and appreciate the invitation. Yeah. I'm hoping that sometime in the future I can get a little promo from you so that way I can play it on my show. Oh, we will send it to you. No problem. Okay, that'd be great. (laughs) That's right. Yours is on our next episode. (laughs) Oh, awesome. Awesome. Because I just listened to Xenozoic Tales. Right. uh, Number 10. Excellent. And uh, I want to get that book, just the one that says Xenozoic. Yes. Um, I want to get that because it just looks like it would be the entire run and it would be great. So it's a beautiful book. It's a nice oversized book. It's fantastic. You'll enjoy it. All right. Well, um, you know, when I was looking over the notes, because today we're talking about Jason and the Argonauts from 1963. (laughs) Now, um, I didn't know an entirely a lot about this movie. I mean, I had seen it in the past and I had uh, really appreciated the 
skeleton fight scene and the works that Ray Harryhausen has done for yes. the film. Now, um, with with both of you, how have you felt about this specific film of Jason and the Argonauts? Oh, I think it's fabulous. I love the special effects, of course, and great storytelling, acting characters, you know, adventure. So it's very much the kind of film that I enjoy seeing. Yeah, I would say the same thing. I grew up loving science fiction and fantasy mystery. Those are sort of the genres that I grew up loving. And I grew up loving the films of Ray Harryhausen. I knew them very early on. And, uh, you know, whenever one of those was playing on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon on the local TV station, I was glued to the set and loved everything about them. And this is certainly one of my favorites of his many movies of which most are my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, yeah. I, I'm one that I really enjoy. Well, I've enjoyed King Kong, surprisingly, oh, yeah. the, uh, the original 1930, the original. The 1933 version. Cause I right. even, I reviewed that one on my show. You did. It was a good episode. And, uh, and I, I appreciated the effects that Ray Harryhausen actually did for that movie and then um you know it just kind of progressed over time because i kept on looking for okay what else has he done and yeah uh, and it just you know it's a really amazing piece of work that he really has done so yeah that that movie inspired him you know that was everything he wanted to do with his life so you know he uh, it's amazing how he was all self-taught uh, he didn't really go to school for anything like that. And he created the way so much of that was done. And uh, throughout his whole career from Mighty Joe Young that he did, and he was sort of hired on just as an assistant, but it was interesting. Something came up and the person who was hired to do the majority of the effects basically had to focus on just one particular sequence and left Ray Harryhausen to do all the rest of the effects for that movie. Mm-hmm. So he ended up being hired as an assistant and yet doing almost all the effects for Mighty Joe Young and then moved on from there. Basically his next film was his own film with uh, beast from 20,000 fathoms. I believe it is. Oh yeah. Yeah. And went straight on from there. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's in my notes, even one of the skeleton shields were adorned with designs of the other Ray Harryhausen movies or creatures and, and one of them was the octopus uh, and the head of the Ymir from the 20 million miles to Earth, too. So I was, I was really glad that you uh, keyed us in on that because as, as long as I've been a fan of Ray Harryhausen movies, I had never picked up on that with the shields on the, uh, that the skeletons use. So as soon as you mentioned that to us when we were rewatching the film for this, it was like, Oh yeah, look, look, look. So thank you so much for that. It's the way we, you know, we learned from each other and that was a perfect thing to have picked up from you. Thanks. Yeah, I showed I showed my mom and my sister that today because I was excited that I was getting on with you too and we were gonna right. talk about Jason and the Argonauts and my mom's like, What's that? And I'm like, Oh, it's just this really cool movie and it really is set for the uh the iconic scene of these skeletons fighting the hero and Right. And so I played it on YouTube for him. <laughs> and oh, my mom great. was like, wow, that's really cool. And, and even on there, I could really tell, like you could see it clearly, like what 
shield represented something else. Like, I think one of them was uh, the face of Medusa. Medusa, yeah. Yeah. I noticed that one too, which of course he didn't do um, Medusa until a later movie, but I guess Mm -hmm. he was uh, looking forward to doing Medusa. So it was sort of an advanced preview. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What did you find with like facts about Ray Harryhausen? What what has really helped uh, to be understanding more about his work or on the facts of like um, the movie Jason and the Argonauts? How how have you felt with his work on that this specific movie? So uh, it is interesting. Like I was saying earlier, how, how he was self taught, and it was interesting we actually were rewatching a documentary before uh, this as well. And it, it on that documentary, several directors who were influenced by him, you know, that are modern directors are talking about how, you know, today you hire for your animation, whether it's computer or, or modeled, you hire one person to do the eyes and you hire one person to do the eyebrows and you hire one person to do the body and one person to do the tail. And Ray Harryhausen did everything from designing to building to modeling to the animation. Uh, So it's just this sort of one-man shop. Uh, It was uh, amazing that he, you know, could do all that himself and created sort of the way to do it because really nobody had done it the way he did prior to that. And for specifically Jason and the Argonauts, I think he really, you know, he outdid himself, which he always tried to do with each movie. And you get it with the iconic skeleton sequence that you just mentioned, because he did a sequence in an earlier Sinbad movie that had one skeleton. Mm. So mm-hmm. he said, okay, you know, that was really good. That turned out good. The audience liked it. We should now do seven skeletons. <laughs> <laughs> so he built six new skeletons and uh, added to the one that he built for the seventh voyage of Sinbad and, and we got that wonderful sequence. So that's just sort of how he was. That's what I think of him is he always had, he, there was no one in his league and yet he always had to outdo himself with each subsequent movie. Mm-hmm. He uh, was looking ahead, to make it spectacular. And one thing I appreciated in learning about the film is his research of mythology and trying to think how could he take some things from Greek myths and fit them in to help the storytelling storytelling go well, as well as to fit what he could do with the models. Very good point. Yes. Because he, he, it's a very faithful when you really look at it, they, he had changed fewer things than I thought, but he chose, he changed some specific things, but that he thought made it better for a modern audience and yet kept the uh, original intent. So one example would be like the original story had a dragon, a dragon, rather than the Hydra monster. Mm -hmm. And he decided so many people were used to thinking of dragons and castles and medieval kind of stories that it could be a better fit to take something else out of that mythology and place instead and would make for a very exciting creature to to bring to life. Yeah, so he took the Hydra from the adventures of Hercules and used it in the story. So really great. totally makes sense. Because, I mean, Hercules was in it. Yeah. it was just a unique kind of throwback to something that, you know, was actually attached to his character. And uh, I like how, how he actually animated like each head 
Oh yeah. Individually. Like he, you know, he, he would actually have them kind of fight with each other on screen. (laughs) It seemed like, uh, because they were, they were almost like an individual mind of each, each head. So different personalities showing through. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're right, Randy. I remember that they sort of snap at each other some, and that's, I'll just mention one more thing about the documentary. I know we're talking about Jason and the Argonauts, but it was so interesting in the documentary that they, mentioned as well that I thought it was really interesting after Ray Harryhausen received the Gordon E. Sawyer award, uh, recognizing his contributions to the film industry at the Oscars. And this was in regard to the science and technical ceremony in 1992. Um, Tom Hanks was the host and he had said, some people say citizen Kane or Casablanca. I say Jason and the Argonauts is the greatest movie ever made. And <laughs> I thought that was just a really neat quote because, oh, go ahead. I was going to say huge compliment. Yeah. Yeah. It just, you know, I mean, that just blew me away. Cause it's like, here's Tom Hanks star of so many really good movies. And he's such a well-rounded actor mm. and he can really appreciate the work that Ray Harryhausen did on these early films. Yes. He, I, I remember hearing that too. I'm glad you brought it up because yeah, what a compliment to pay him, especially once he finally received the Oscar that he should have already had a closet full of Oscars from all of his movies. But thankfully they finally came around and gave him a lifetime achievement Oscar because he certainly deserved it. Yeah. And, and that, uh, it took him a long time because, I mean, he didn't get any Oscars for any of his movies and they were Oscar worthy because of mm-hmm. the, the in-depth work that he did on those films. Go ahead. Oh, no, I, I was just going to say, yeah, that is amazing. And it's interesting. He was, I heard someone describe him as a glass, glass half full type of person. So he always looked at things optimistically and didn't get negative about it. Though I think the people around him were much more resentful and his fans were much more resentful because it was one of those things that some of the suggestion is that because, you know, he was making his movies for Hollywood production companies, usually us UK co-productions, but his movies were all made in the UK or in Europe. And they were talking about how he not living in California didn't have the connection to Hollywood that would have been normal at the time. So it was Mm -hmm. easy for him to be overlooked. And that seemed to just sort of keep happening and keep happening. And it really wasn't until the next generation of directors who grew up learning from watching his movies started you know, raising the question, why hasn't Ray Harryhausen ever received an Oscar that the Academy sort of is an embarrassment said, yeah, you're right. He should have received one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. um, Another thing I noticed uh, was the idea, like in Jason and the Argonauts, one of his uh, unique uh, things that he did with that movie was, uh, the changing of the character of Talos into a living bronze giant. Mm -hmm. I thought that uh, it would become one of Ray Harryhausen's most famous creations that he put together. 
And isn't it an amazing uh, creature that uh, is, you know, just even with the sound effects added and the way he moves, I mean, it really does look like something metallic trying mm-hmm. to move. You know, something that's not made to move is moving. He captured it perfectly. And the perspective is incredible, just how the people look oh so small, like maybe as big as his toe. And then he's just <laughs> this huge, huge giant that you can hardly imagine the size difference. Yeah. And it looks, you know, so believable. Right. Yeah. And I, I really appreciated that too, Ruth, because uh, you look at it and you're like, man, he is really large. <laughs> and then you see Jason and he's trying to pry off the back of the one of the feet yeah. to empty it out with whatever liquid was in there. <laughs> The blood of the gods, I it's, think. Yeah, it's, it's oh, Icor, okay. the blood of the gods that he was infused with to make him come to life. But uh, yeah, that's uh, amazing the way, he, uh, and it looks so realistic the way he can merge his models together with, you know, the obviously on set uh, foot statue that was there. But it just looks so amazing. Yeah. And I'm going to oh, interrupt just because I remembered what I was going to say about the Hydra. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. So you were you brought up such a great point, uh, Randy, when you were talking about how he moved all of those seven heads intricately and, and they sort of all sort of snapped at each other. And what was interesting and that I had never thought about, but one of the, uh, we heard another director mention about him is that in today's world, you have videotape that you can be recording yourself as you're moving it. And if you get interrupted or you go to sleep at the end of the day and have to start back the next day, you can wind the film back and see what you last did. He had to keep it all in his memory because he didn't have videotape to film himself. He couldn't use film and send it off for processing and wait for it to come back. So that was all in his head. What all of those different seven heads had just done previously. And then the second before that and the second before that, it's unbelievable. Yeah, that's so impressive. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's just something that that filmmakers today don't even realize the level of intricacy that that actually takes. And mm-hmm. I mean, you get that sometimes with an animated film currently, like one example, which I still hit myself over the head each time that I haven't watched it yet. But um, it's uh, Kubo and the Two Strings. All right. Um, that's uh, actually a blend of stop motion animation and uh, clay animation and uh, computer. It's a blend of those three mediums to where it makes it you know look fantastic because they used like real s- miniature sets and things like that. Excellent. See, there you go, educating us again, because I'm not familiar with that. So that has to go on our uh, to rent list. Well, it's on Netflix. Excellent. So if, if you have Netflix, then um, you can probably watch it on there. I think it's still on there. I hope mm-hmm. it is, because I still want to see it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you can't take it off yet. I'm not ready for it to be done. Uh, uh, one of the things I liked um, was most of or the previous Harryhausen movies were shown as a double feature in these B theaters. And Columbia was able to book this film as a single feature in many of the A theaters in the United States. I thought that was really kind of cool. 
That is really great because it certainly was a quality that deserved it. And it's interesting too, because it's such a great movie. And yet at the same time, they dropped so many hints in throughout the movie that there was going to be a sequel. Mm. And, uh, you know, sadly we don't get it, but uh, it certainly was an A-level movie. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing that I noticed when you watch the very end of the film, you feel like, there needs to be a sequel to this because they leave you hanging. Like, yeah. it's like, oh, we're going to come back to you, Jason. <laughs> yes. We have more to do to you. <laughs> That's right. It, it's right there. <laughs> it's like, it's like there's this sinister Zeus and he's, you know, he's like, he's plotting. He's ready for more. Right. <laughs> Have your moment of happiness now, but we'll be back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and then the film just ends and it's like, yeah. where are we going with this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They've only, they've traveled halfway around the world. They've got to travel halfway back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, another thing I'd like to get into in regard to Ray Harryhausen's movies or even this specific one why don't you tell me a little bit about the dynamation process? That's a great, uh, a great question because it is really revolutionary what he came up with. You know, rear projection, he used rear projection in doing his effects. And rear projection has been around since the beginning of filmmaking. But it was always obvious that it was happening. You could tell the flat effect of actors being filmed in front of a rear projected background. But Ray Harryhausen, again, being self-taught on everything, but he, he was an artist in and of himself, you know, creating all those creatures from the intricate armatures inside to the beautiful sculpting on the outside. But he also self-taught himself in lighting and in film stock, film stock so he understood mm-hmm. how all that worked. So for him, he created this process where he understood lighting so much, how he had to light the models, but also how the the sets the for the full size sets for the actors or location filming needed to be lit as well to blend in. So he created this process where he would have a screen so that they would uh, choreograph and film the actors without the effects there, of course. And then he would go back and he would have a rear projection screen that he would project one frame of film at a time Mm -hmm. on that rear projection screen. And in front of that, he would have his models. And if there were parts of the film that needed to be like re-exposed later, he would put up a uh, matte painting to sort of black those out. So he could then merge the two pieces of film together so that he could then show his, uh, his models, not just in front of the screen and what was happening, but could show them sort of behind things as well. So he would have to black out parts of the film and then remerge the two pieces together. So he created that process where he would then move, you know, one for one frame at a time, you know, 24 frames of film in a second. So one frame at a time, he would go through that. We were talking about the uh, skeleton sequence, which is unbelievable. He has seven skeletons. Mm-hmm. each eight to 10 inches tall with they, lots of joints and lots of ways to move, to move each yeah. and every one of them. And that sequence from beginning to end is just over three minutes long. Yeah. But he had so many uh, components that had to be moved for each frame of film that he could only complete 15 frames a day. That's oh, wow. not even one second. Yeah. It took four and a half months 
to oh, do that man. three minutes of film. Uh, <laughs> Talk about patience. Yeah. And yeah. really having to wait to see your reward at the end. Right. Uh, I don't know how he did it. <laughs> but, but what's so interesting about it is, and this is something being a longtime Ray Harryhausen fan, you know, we all talk about Ray Harryhausen movies. We talk about him as if he's the auteur of the movies, mm-hmm. which is usually the what is held for the director is the author of a movie. But Ray Harryhausen was effectively the director of his movies because he, he was there. He usually envisioned the story. He usually worked on the script. He was on set during all of the production, mm-hmm. ensuring that everything was right and set up right. And then he did all the post-production on his own. So it was interesting. There were directors for all of his movies, but the directors would actually work under his direction. Oh yeah. Uh, and, uh, and they said it, you know, it was sort of tough. They had to find directors who could understand that and who could work within that. You know, they, they still needed a director to sort of make sure, you know, the actors and the performances and everything were good, but they had to follow first Ray Harryhausen and what needed to be done to make sure that it could all blend together later. And, but it was sort of the complexities of how the director's guild would work because, you know, probably it should have been always credited as two directors. Mm-hmm. Like this movie is directed by Don Chafee. It should probably be directed by Don Chafee and Ray Harryhausen. Yeah. But, but it's not. Wasn't he known for some hammer horror films of like 1 million years BC and then uh, the creature creatures the world forgot. And then one thing I noticed in your notes was Pete's dragon. And that's, yes. that's like one of my personal <laughs> personal favorite movies and <laughs> i still haven't been able to actually do that one on my podcast but that that movie speaks to me in a way that i don't i haven't seen the new one and yeah. i have a hard time letting go of that nostalgia yeah, for right. the original because there's so many memorable songs in it there's so much mm-hmm. uh the blend of animation and live action and the way they did their film production. Don Chafee did an amazing job with that film for directing. Right. And so, I mean, working with Ray Harryhausen, it must've just been (laughs) like standing in the room with a a genius, you know, because he, Ray Harryhausen, he must've just had, immense amount of patience for oh, absolutely <laughs> and and they seem to make a good team because you're right they did uh the uh, couple of hammer movies together as well and then they sort of went their own separate ways but they seem to work together well because they worked together multiple times so yeah don chafee he did a, a a lot of good television too the avengers that we love the, the uk espionage series and the prisoner lots of other television as well so but yeah pete dragon i can remember seeing when i was growing up as well Hold yeah. on to the nostalgia. That's, okay. that's incredible. <laughs> I will uh, I will continue to do that because to this day, I just think of those songs and, you know, it just brings things all the way back. To I, I can, I can tell that's so. going to be on your schedule soon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it'll, it'll be on there. I have a few, uh, like, current movie releases that I'm doing, like the original movie, too. Um, right. I don't. I can't remember when this podcast is going to be coming out because I've got uh, a couple composer interviews that will be going on, 
and um, I can't remember my schedule. <laughs> so you're a busy um, guy. Well, I try to go a few ahead, so that way I don't back myself up. Like right. you know, I'm rushing to get one done. It's like. I, I try to be a little ahead and for sure when this episode will go up, I will definitely let you know and say, oh. Hey, the episode's finally going up. <laughs> no worries. So, um, I wanted to get into a little bit on the production side of things. Um, what did you find with like the production, say even with uh, the films being completed in Italy and even in the UK um, you had talked about the series Sir Francis Drake being a producer, and I had mentioned that too somewhere in my notes. Um, the film being released in the waning years of the Italian produced sword and sandal mythological muscle man movies. Yeah. And uh, they had Nigel Green as Hercules, and he was tall, but he lacked that bodybuilder physique that moviegoers were going for the film wasn't able to match the scale or the spectacle of those european productions and even the special effects that ray harryhausen could give uh do you have any thoughts on that or yeah you know it's sort of interesting i know ray harryhausen cast nigel green as hercules and he specifically did not want to cast a you know, muscular actor, which had been sort of the norm. It's interesting. It's sort of, he took the approach that you hear people on both sides of the issue with Superman, you know, should Superman be a really muscular guy or not? You know, if he's super strong, he doesn't necessarily need to have all that muscle mass. So, and that's sort of the same approach that Ray Harryhausen took with Hercules is he's, you know, half, half God, half son of uh, Zeus. Mm -hmm. So he has this inherent strength. He doesn't need to be a big muscular guy, but it, it's interesting. Like you talked about in the waning years of, and that, you know, I guess from their point of view, they came along and they were doing something much more faithful and much more, I guess, a list like you were talking about. So they seem to just try to ignore what had sort of been done with that Italian cinema and uh, do their own thing. And I, I thought it was beautiful the way they did it. And I thought it was very appropriate for them to film it where they did. They got to take advantage of, you know, those real ruins in Italy where they filmed and uh, which I noticed that one of them in researching one of the, places they went to and filmed was also then reused in Clash of the Titans, which I know is a favorite of yours. Oh yeah. So I, I thought that was perfect, but I, I think they just did an amazing job with what they chose to do. And uh, it certainly lasted the test of time where those other movies haven't. What do you think, Ruth? I agree. I'm just thinking about <laughs> the landscape. I always love, you know, seeing different parts of the world in film and just thinking about some of the, the rugged coastline and the rocks and the, you know, very much the Mediterranean atmosphere. How so, blue the water was. Yes. You kept saying, yes the water was the water so is. blue. Yes. <laughs> it's so clear. Yes. And it was probably, you know, it was during a time when there wasn't a lot of pollution in the water. Right. It just made things look, just stand out, you know, it, yeah. it just crystal clear. And, and even, okay, one thing that I, I thought about in the movie you see uh, Neptune, or is it Neptune? 
I think I saw that it was listed as Triton. Oh, okay. Triton. But the thing is, you get into like what's the Roman name versus what's the Greek name. Yeah. So it, it could be Neptune as well. Yeah. And like, you know, he stood up and, you know, you have this, <laughs> this just an actor playing the character. But right. it's still, you know, even in that day, they, they still had this way that they could produce a depth mm. to the film. You know, to yeah. to show like, okay, here's the boat. Here's mm-hmm. the characters on the boat. Now they're looking up at this giant that's trying to hold back the rocks. And right. it's amazing, really, what they could do <laughs> with film back then. The set was amazing for that, too, because you think about, you know, that was a real actor in the water there, but it had all of those rock walls around. Yes. Very well done. Yeah. Um one of the things uh I wanted you to bring out was like some of the characters uh in the film. Like uh some of them had relation to other uh projects and everything. Such as Honor Blackman. She is a favorite of mine. Yeah. Uh, she's famous for Kathy Gale from the Avengers. So I'm a big fan of hers there. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, everybody knows uh, Emma Peel. Uh, Diana Rigg is Emma Peel from the Avengers. Mm-hmm. But actually, Kathy Gale was the first female partner of John Steed. So Honor Blackman was in the second and third seasons of the Avengers and was a huge star and really broke that uh, wall in television for, you know, female action heroes there in 1962, 63. And then, of course, she got uh, she left the Avengers to go and make. I noticed uh, the voice of Nancy Ko- Kovac, uh, who played Medea. She was actually dubbed by Eva Haddon, and she was known for BBC Radio. Yes. Now, what I noticed for for you guys, you had put down something regarding a BBC series in the 60s. What was that? Oh, uh, so that was actually Douglas Wilmer, who plays Peleus, uh, the evil king, uh, was Sherlock Holmes in a very famous BBC series uh, made in the 1960s. It's still well regarded today. In fact, uh, I think the Criterion Edition released that on DVD a while back with some really nice restorations on it. Very well received version. And we were talking about Honor Blackman as well. I forgot about that. We will come back to Honor Blackman too, mm-hmm. because um, she left the Avengers to make a James Bond movie, Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting is Diana Rigg, who replaced her as Emma Peel on the Avengers, left the Avengers after two years to make a James Bond movie on Her <laughs> Majesty's Secret Service. No so, <laughs> pattern. Yeah, there's a pattern there. Yeah, uh, and I also love it. There's an episode of the Avengers, the first season of Diana Rigg. It's funny that uh, John Steed gets a Christmas card from Kathy Gale, played by Honor Blackman. And mm-hmm. he says, how interesting. Kathy Gale sent me a Christmas card from Fort Knox. I wonder what she's doing there. <laughs> <laughs> Which That's is, of course, funny. part of the plot of Goldfinger. Yeah. But, but Douglas Wilmer we love as, as Sherlock Holmes. And actually, he uh, was just recently Benedict Cumberbatch, Sherlock Holmes, he actually played in one episode of that as uh, one of the um, older men that uh, is at the uh, 
the club that Mycroft Holmes always goes to. So he actually showed up in that one. So that's a really nice uh, uh, person that he shows up there as well. And then, of course, uh, Phineas, who is the blind uh, man who's being tormented by the harpies, Mm -hmm. is Patrick Troughton who went on to be the second doctor in Doctor Who later in the 60s. So oh, okay. it's a really great cast uh, in this movie. I mean, they're all great, but it's interesting. There are several people that are very well known for roles that, you know, were remembered for decades. Later. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, okay. So we have like this, this list of different characters that were in it. Um, such as Nigel Green and Douglas mm-hmm. uh, Wilmer, and then they would play uh, Fu Manchu's arch enemy, Sir Dennis Nalen Smith, in films starring with uh, Christopher Lee as oh. the Chinese criminal mastermind Green in the in the face of Fu Manchu and Wilmer in The Brides of Fu Manchu and the vengeance of Fu Manchu. So they went on to do like three different movies all with the same uh, character and everything. That's really neat. What a connection. (laughs) Hey, and Christopher Lee, there's a connection to anything and everything British. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. I like the fact in your notes, you had mentioned that it took the next generation of directors and effects artists that actually learned from Ray Harryhausen and they were influenced to include George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. And I, I really think that's really an amazing piece of history because you look back even on early films of Spielberg and even of George Lucas, not only of uh, star Wars for George Lucas, but with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas working together on Raiders yeah, of the yeah, Lost Ark. Yeah, right. yeah. And uh, it just, you know, it built upon that. And um, Steven Spielberg was able to use like these props and different things in um, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Right. That's another film that just was unique for yes, uh, someone, like, someone like uh, Steven Spielberg. And, um, my listen, listeners can go back in my archive and listen to that episode as well. <laughs> uh, I always encourage ones to go back. And if I'm talking about a certain movie, it's like, go back and listen to it. It's a good episode. I had uh, yes. er- Eric Woods on my, on my show with me and he does an amazing show with uh, cinematic sound radio. So uh, it's, it's uh, I encourage people to go back and listen as well, because uh, you know, we discovered your show, you had a, a backlog of more than a dozen episodes or so, I guess. So it was wonderful to go back and listen. And we've heard friends that we know from other podcasts, uh, guests on your show too. So they're delightful. But yes, I, I absolutely love the fact that it was the next generation of directors that basically, you know, lobbied to get Ray Harryhausen on that recognition. I mean, you even look at movies like Star Wars, the, you know, Star Wars, and even the Empire Strikes Back, uh, even Return of the Jedi with the Rancor, you have them using those same sorts of techniques, you know, mm-hmm. the way that AT-ATs move and everything, it's stop motion and uh, beautifully done. And they recognize, you know, they learned that from Ray Harryhausen. And it's wonderful that those individuals are the people who lobbied 
to make sure that he got that Oscar that he deserved. And, and I'll just, I'll mention here, I know I mentioned a couple of times the documentary, but, and it, I don't know if it's available on Netflix or not, but if you have Amazon prime, it's free on Amazon prime. Oh, okay. Uh, the documentary it's called Ray Harryhausen special effects Titan. And coincidentally it was made and released in theaters in the UK in 2013 which sadly is the year that Ray Harryhausen passed away, but the movie was completed before he passed away. So he is in it throughout the movie. There's wonderful interviews with him, but what's even more amazing are all the interviews with all the other directors who have been influenced by him. So it's basically a 90 minute movie of directors talking about how they wouldn't have ever done anything that they did if it hadn't been for Ray Harryhausen. Spielberg's on there talking about, uh, you know, Jurassic Park, you know, mm-hmm. he specific movements in Jurassic Park are taken exactly from Ray Harryhausen movies. Uh, Peter Jackson, who we love because we love the Lord of the Rings movies. He's, those are just magical. And Peter Jackson's a huge fan of Ray Harryhausen. And he has contributed lots of money to the Ray Harryhausen foundation to help save and protect his models. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a very big fan and uh, we talked about the Oscar that was presented earlier, which in- interestingly was presented by Ray Bradbury, who was very good friends with Ray Harryhausen. But Peter Jackson got to present Ray Harryhausen with his Lifetime Achievement Award at the BAFTAs. Oh, so okay. that was an- another thing he got to do. But he's in this documentary, Steven Spielberg, James Cameron, Tim Burton, Guillermo del Toro, jo- Joe Dante, John Landis, and Terry Gilliam. Oh, so wow. it's a fantastic documentary. Yeah. I would recommend it to anyone. I'll be able to to watch that because uh, my wife and I have Amazon Prime, and uh, well, like I wasn't able to watch Jason and the Argonauts free, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's like I still enjoyed it on Amazon Prime because you can you can get it on Netflix. So uh, yeah, that's that's just a really, you know, fascinating way of looking at things. One thing I'd like to get into is, uh, the music part of my podcast now. Yes. That's what we're here for. Yeah, (laughs) That's why it's called soundtrack alley. I, I like how, when you contrast with Bernard Herman's all string score for, uh, the movie psycho, um, the soundtrack was made without a string section in this film. Yeah, and I found that really interesting because when you even listen to certain parts of it and just you're not listening, you know, you're not distracted by anything else. You can hear the breath of the people blowing into the horns and wow. woodwinds and you can just you can feel it more of a, you know, organic type of score um, rather than listening to the the strings, and it gives you the brass, the percussion uh, to f- perform these heroic fanfares, and the woodwinds along with those additional instruments, such as something like the harp, mm-hmm. and uh, it dominates that subtle and romantic part of the movie. Um, right. And one thing I, I found really interesting was that Bernard Herrmann's score utilizes like a technique known as self-borrowing. Right. And he actually borrowed from other films that he himself had composed to use 
in this movie. And a couple of those films are North by Northwest and oh, Vertigo. Oh, wow, nice. So um, that was really interesting, The the uh, some of the scores that he actually used to help uh, this movie get on the ground floor. Well, that, that's really nice. I'm glad you brought that up, Randy, because it makes me think of what we were talking about with Ray Harryhausen earlier, how he would sort of challenge himself later. So, okay, in, in a Sinbad movie, he had one skeleton. The next time he challenged himself, with seven skeletons, I can imagine the same thing with Bernard Herrmann, who, uh, you know, he, he's self borrowing from himself, but I'm sure he took those earlier pieces and he, he made them something different and unique for this movie as well. So I, it's sort of like a parallel of how the two of them sort of learn from their own craft and uh, change their own pieces. So very neat uh, bit of trivia. Yeah. And then one other thing that I noticed was in the early press material, this, let's see, Mario Nesembin, he mm-hmm. was credited as the music composer for this film. Oh. And that was odd because he was considered in case Bernard Herrmann would oh. turn down the offer to compose. Oh. But Bernard Herrmann went ahead and composed. And so even in later interviews, Nisimbin, he claimed that he never heard of the film. <laughs> it's probably, probably because Herrmann accepted the offer before this other could be approached. And so right. he went on to compose music for another of Frey Harryhausen's films, which was one million years BC, and that oh. was also that was also directed by Don Chaffee. Right. So, very um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wanted to try to look deeper into my soundtrack uh, monologue type things <laughs> 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 to really look at that and really see. Okay, so uh, how how much information do I have on the music (laughs) itself and how does it affect like these pieces of the movie? And, you know, we'll talk, we'll get into that a little bit on like how the music affects even the visual effects, right? What that actually means. Um, So, you know, I've got a few cues for this uh, episode and the first cues that I have it is in regard to the Jason prelude, uh, the prophecy and the battle, and the riverbank. And a, a few points that I noticed about uh, these specific cues, um, you get this thunderous fanfare mm-hmm. for the Jason prelude with like a roaring timpani and brass and it contains these three main themes that can recur throughout the whole score. And I think that's really amazing because um, I think of, um, oh, Craig Saffin, who composed Mm -hmm. The Last Starfighter. He used different themes throughout the movie, and he would use them in such a way to, like, blend them slowly or make them really fast and upbeat and and it's the same theme 
mm-hmm. but you don't notice it because it's being used in a different way. And I think that's uh, what Bernard Herman did with these very uh, pieces. And it also leads into like this diametrically opposite piece of the prophecy and the battle, which begins as this quiet brooding music. And it's kind of reminiscent of the movie Citizen Kane, where Mm. the cue builds slowly and then the battle sequences are filled with percussion and alternating tugs of war between the horns and, and the bassoons. And it's just, it's really a cacophony of Mm -hmm. noise, but it's, it's unique uh, in the way that it's presented. So um, one last point I had on these uh, is the prophecy. And it's like an archetypical Herman, like his classic two note motif shifting from the major to the minor chords and it's put to a brilliant use to create a quiet and ominous, portentous mood. And it's got this mesmerizing harp uh, to work over these flutes that introduce Jason in the riverbank. And mm-hmm. then it also includes that reprise of the prophecy theme to remind the viewer or the listener of the place of where that prediction began. Right. I thought that was really cool. Um, so what did you find in these, you know, these kind of pieces of music that you found enjoyable uh, to really think about? Well, I, I'm like you. I love that opening piece because it's it's uh, just suggestive of everything to come. And you get that sort of, you know, pounding uh, that, like you said, will come back and revisit because it suggests, you know, an army marching it suggests the rowing of the boats and it suggests the, you know, uh, the walking of uh, Talos, the giant bronze statue. And so I just love that opening piece. And then you're right. It's like right after that, with the beginning of the movie, with the prophecy, it really slows down and it builds up again, like you said, to the battle that occurs when Peleus, you know, starts all this mess. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I like some of the words you use are very descriptive. So the cacophony, that was a great word was, yeah. as, as well as pointing out like the tugging of one, you know, type of instrument against the other type of instrument yeah. and it just gets chaotic. Very representative mm-hmm. of a battle, you know, that back and forth. And, and then it goes right into the riverbank scene, which is sort of a little playful, you know, that's, you know, Hera causes players uh, to get thrown off his horse and Jason comes to the rescue and, and you get a little bit of playfulness there following that ugly battle. So it's a wonderful selection of opening pieces of music. Yeah. Um, Ruth, what did you think of like some of those pieces or did you have any thoughts? I'm trying to think. I agree with what's been said. I'm trying to think what I could add to it. I would say with the prophecy and the battle kind of area, thinking of a mysterious tone as well. It's like, you don't quite know how's this going to turn out. You know, is he going to kill all of the children or will somebody escape? Yeah. And you know, what's going to happen next. And, um, Hera's appearance mm-hmm. at the temple. Like at first when she shows up, she's just all in shadow, like a silhouette. Yeah. And you know, it's just such a contrast. Yeah. And I found that too. Um, now with, with regard these, to these pieces. Uh, do you feel that some of the visual effects 
uh, really helped with the music? I think they blended together so well, like very complimentary that the visuals and the music were just so well integrated and helped support each other. Mm-hmm. Especially in these early scenes, because there aren't as many uh, of, of what we think of as the visual effects in this film in these early scenes, but they do blend together seamlessly and they, more than anything else, they do a good job of suggesting the personalities. You get the personality of Peleus, you get the personality of Hera, uh, you get the personality of Jason mm-hmm. in, this, in this music. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, so now uh, we can play those cues of Jason Prelude, The Prophecy, The Battle, and The Riverbank.
Okay, so next uh, we can get into some of the great action of mm. the film. Um, we include like these three cues that fit into that Bernard Herrmann score genre. Now, I know that's kind of hard to think about is you wouldn't think of Bernard Herrmann having his own genre <laughs> of scoring, but I really thought it true because I've, when I've listened to other Bernard Herrmann scores, uh, you really get the feeling that he had this style. Like you look at certain composers and they have a certain style that they stick with and you can identify if it's say a Hans Zimmer score or a John Williams score, or even a, um, uh, <laughs> not a Blake Edwards. It's a, uh, <laughs> I oh, like that too. Uh, <laughs> no, but Henry, Henry, Henry Mancini. Mancini. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. And, and you can really feel like, like these certain composers have this style that they stick with. And right. that's the thing with this score is that, with the Titans, uh, there's like three pieces I want to play, but they're all in three sections. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, so this first section is called the Titans, the Chamber, and the Door. And then the next one is Talos, the Boat, the Wreck, and the Attack, Talos Heal, and Talos Death. Now, the action in this first piece really serves as a great example why... Harryhausen was the master of his craft. Um, that pounding timpani and brass, uh, it gives this tense, exciting feel uh, to the action that uh, occurs. And, you know, you have the exception of where Hera speaks because it's real quiet and, and subtle and she's like quietly speaking. And it's so funny in the movie because she's whispering and it's like, her talking head because <laughs> she's on the boat isn't it? right yes <laughs> yes yeah figurehead <laughs> yeah and uh it's just interesting how that's uh brought out and then you know then you get that next attack next track of being um the talos attack and it runs eight minutes long wow which is a really long cue for a piece of music um, and it allowed Herman the opportunity to really let that brass give it their all, you know, just mm -hmm. let them go full force with the score. And uh, then the Titans and the following cues that take place on the Isle of Bronze are perhaps the score's standout cues that they're beautifully muted, uh, they're ominous, they're chordal progression, and um, it gives that inevitable coming to life uh, with that bronze titan, and um, it really captures an exquisite feeling of awesome power that this giant um, statue, mm -hmm. more or less, is mm -hmm. invoking uh, with the film score. Mm -hmm. um, Ruth, Darren, what did you feel on like these, this action piece? I mean, do you feel like, how did you feel with the visuals? Did it affect even yourself? Like, how did it make you feel? 
Oh, the the deep sound of the timpanis, you know, just resonated and matched so much the visual of the giant and the slow motion as he is, you know, reviving and starting to uh, walk around and encounter the humans. So it just really helped build the tension, very ominous, as you said, um, added a lot to just the atmosphere and the mood that you could kind of feel in your core as you're watching it. Yeah, it really helps bring out the size of uh, the the bronze statue because, you know, you see how large he is compared to the men, but the those timpani drums just pounding with each footstep just makes you even more aware of how large he's supposed to be. They're perfect. Such a deep sound. Mm. Yeah, and uh, one thing that I think about when I hear a piece like this and then see the visuals of it, it reminds me of the film Fantasia. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because you get that, like they're using these classical pieces of music and you get the visuals on the screen of like the exact moments of when the piece of music changes or like, as we talked about with the timpani, the drums of each step that mm -hmm. the, the giant would do. And, you know, the statue and, and then you add in the sound effects mm -hmm. and that even adds to the tension because like you mentioned earlier, you can feel the metal mm -hmm. scraping and, <laughs> and it's almost like, Oh, but, but it's the visual style of it is just so impressive. And they, they must've used like, you know, they have a, uh, a Foley effect, you know, they have mm -hmm. yeah. Foley effects to be able to like crinkle a piece of paper like this. Right. right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, have, have like a, a situation where, they can use that and say, okay, let's, let's use that sound and see how it'll sound uh, <laughs> elsewhere. And, and um, I think Ray Harryhausen probably used that to his advantage for even uh, doing those pieces of music too. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So, um, so now um, let's play the Titans, the chamber, the door, and then Talos, the boat, the wreck, and then attack Talos heel and Talos death.
we've come to, I know it's sad, but (laughs) we're coming down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. Darren and Ruth, I've enjoyed really having you on the show today. Oh, terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the uh, what I'd like to play is the stolen fleece, the teeth, and then the path, the cure, and then Hydra's teeth, the skeleton attack, and Sherzo Macabre. Um, now, what did you think of? Now, I know we talked off air about this very sequence, mm-hmm. um, specifically the skeleton attack. Now, how did you feel about the um, skeleton attack coinciding with some of the music and the sound effects? It was fabulous. <laughs> fabulous. I absolutely love the you know percussion sound that really made you think of bones clattering together. Just, just so effective and scary. I saw Ruth's eyes light up. I knew I just had to move away from the microphone. <laughs> My turn. <laughs> well, yeah, I appreciate you. that. I really do. Because, you know, you, you wonder how the, uh, the feeling of this music or even how the, the, the visuals compare and how it makes you feel when you hear the music. And like you said, Ruth, that, uh, the bones and you you even hear it uh, like even though there's it's almost like there's like these maracas or something yeah. going on uh, during the scene because you feel like the bones are clattering together mm-hmm. and uh, and one thing I noticed in that very scene was how how even though I mean like you said it took him like six months right Six or four and a half. Four and a half. half. Yeah. So with those four and a half months, once it's all done, I mean, you see it and it goes so fast. Yes. And the uh, (laughs) the skeletons are moving at a rapid pace and they're fighting and going super fast against the heroes and everything. And it's like, man, it's just, it's utterly astounding, you know, how Ray Harryhausen directed it and he's like, all right. You actors, you have to act against nothing today. So, (laughs) (laughs) and I think it's made easier now today because they have people that's that dress up in full like green screen or right to kind of hide that they're not there, but they're going to put in whatever they're putting in. So that way, they're not acting against dead air. That's right. right. That's a good point. Yeah, very different today because you're absolutely right. Just like with, you know, we love the Lord of the Rings movies and, you know, Andy Serkis is right there on set as Gollum. But mm-hmm. yes, these actors, you know, they had to choreograph everything with, you know, uh, stuntmen, uh, you know, that they're fighting against, but they had to memorize all their moves and then the stuntmen went away and they had to re- reproduce all those moves with no one there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And um, I mean, it's just, you know, really, really amazing that like even the teeth of the Hydra, Mm -hmm. that it becomes the skeletons and that Mm -hmm. the the guy just like throws them down and he just waits there forever. (laughs) And that's what really got me about the film was that the guy just waited and waited and he's got this tense expression on his face 
waiting and you feel it in the music that the tension is building and it like begins like this brooding rendition of the let's see what it's called dies ira and as the skeletons emerge you've got oh see i should have read this before but it said some of them my notes pointed out that wood blocks and castanets uh-huh. were used effectively to rattle the bones yes very and nice. uh, very organic yeah yeah and this climatic battle takes form in the Sherzo Macabre, which is one of the more challenging and exciting cues that we get from the film itself. And so during the three minutes, the orchestra literally goes wild with all these different instruments performing and the instruments bounce back and forth with these complex maneuvers of music. And I imagine that the, the writing that's on the page is so busy that (laughs) to a a layman we would look at that and be like wow that's a foreign language that's so (laughs) complex um i mean i myself i can't play a musical instrument to save my life um my wife she she can play uh the piano uh, but i don't know how to play an instrument (laughs) so well i I'll uh, I'll chime in. Ruth and I were both in band, mm-hmm. so we we went through oh, the nice. band in in high school, and uh, so we both can read music. And Ruth can play the piano. Used to be able to at least. Right. We don't have a I'm piano. A little rusty. So yeah, so you don't piano. have the opportunity to, pronounce, to uh, practice. Band. It was a clarinet for me. Yeah, and I played the French horn. And then uh, in college, I got a minor in music. Oh, so nice. I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not able to play multiple musical instruments, but I. I do know how to read and even to write music and, and went through all that and, and learned. And actually I'll chime in because I was going to share my music education. I can oh, help yeah. you with the title of that last piece. It's Scherzo Macabre. Oh, okay. There all right. Go. So I, but that's, I that's only I because I, that. I have that minor in music. So I go, Oh, I know how to pronounce that. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, because sometimes when I'm looking at it, you know, and you're trying to read it and then you can't always like look it up to say how it's pronounced. Right. Um, I mean, I have a dictionary. I could look it up, but uh, (laughs) sometimes I just don't take the time. (laughs) No, it's, it's no worries. It's like when I heard you stumble over it, I thought there's no reason that he should know how to pronounce that. But since I do, (laughs) I'll share it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It's just uh, a matter if you've had a chance to hear it. That's not. right. And that's it. That's uh, one of mine and Ruth's favorite um, uh, sort of sayings that we've ever heard is that you should never criticize anyone for mispronouncing uh, a name or a word because it means that they learned that word or that name through reading, which is a wonderful thing. It's not that they heard it on TV. They were reading, which yeah. is always better anyway. So, that's Yeah, and and when you read something, you have to uh, frenetically like try to see like where you think the accent marks are on it. Right. And you may not have that on the page and you're like, well, (laughs) this is how it's going to (laughs) sound. So uh, yeah, because this isn't in English and, and I have no talent for foreign language. So 
I, uh, I applaud those people that do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Um, one more thing in regard to this, let's see, Hydra's teeth. Uh, when it oh. talks about the Hydra's teeth, uh, there's like the music, it stops at this point. And then the, the teeth of the Hydra or the slain Hydra awaken the skeletons and the scene that gives us the best skeleton fight. Um, mm. And mm. it converges on Jason and his men. And, uh, and then it adds that xylophone mm. that carries through those cassinets and the wood blocks. And overall, when we put it together, you have this fantastic cue that just gives you this extreme um, excitement over uh, Bernard Herman's score. So um, I really appreciate that. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts? I would say it's perfect choice or perfect casting of the instruments because mm. you know the xylophone, the castanets, the wood blocks, all organic and all very much going well with those organic bones. I think mm. you know perfect selection for what the sound quality is like. I, I will just chime in there. The second set of uh, tracks that you played just a moment ago mm. uh, with the battle with Talos that music is so amazing. You would think that that would be the height of the music of this movie. Mm-hmm. And then he comes into this sequence and he just says, Nope, what you just heard was nothing compared to what <laughs> I'm going to give you now, because it's, I mean, this whole sequence from the Hydra through uh, the escape, through the skeletons attack, through the final escape. Uh, it, the music is just up and down and is a roller coaster, just like the adventure going on on screen. I, I like Ruth's analogy to the instruments being cast because they really do uh, play an important role in the film. And this whole sequence is uh, just my favorite music easily of this whole movie of a movie full of great music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So once again, I've really appreciated your thoughts on this movie because I don't think this episode could have been as, as good as it is uh, without you being on it. Um, Aww, thank you. You're welcome. You have, you have a love for this, this movie in particular, and um, I've only seen it probably three times. And each time I, I kind of forget what uh, is involved. And I didn't realize you had so many books on Ray Harryhausen and uh, no, I mean, that's really cool. I mean, I he have loves a, what he loves and he always loves it. <laughs> so it's, I've collected those books over the years. So uh-huh. it's just like, Oh, we need to talk about Ray Harryhausen. I've got books on that. <laughs> <laughs> that's great though. It's like a research material, you know, you, yeah. you can, you can always go back to it. Ruth and Darren, where can people find you? Oh, we have a few podcasts we'd love everyone to try out. Uh, we do Trekker Talk, which is about Ron Randall's comic creation. It's sci-fi comic called Trekker about Mercy St. Clair, and she's the 23rd century bounty hunter, really exciting, strong female character, so I certainly recommend that. Uh, we do Warlord Worlds, which is focused on the comics of Mike Grell, uh, who's another favorite of ours. We cover his series, The Warlord, John Sable, and Green Arrow. Uh, we cover those regularly, and we throw in the occasional other title from time to time. And you were mentioning Xenozoic Tales earlier. So we have a Xenozoic Tales, Mark Schultz-focused podcast, 
mm-hmm. uh, about the comic often known as Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. So we get to do podcasts about our three favorite, you know, comic book creators, and we love doing those. Yeah, we've we've been fans of all three of those uh, gentlemen for many, many years, and we've had the opportunity to, in recent years, meet and actually become friends with all three of them. So they've all three been on our shows uh, for interviews, which you know how spectacular that is, Randy, yeah. to be able to get great guests. I know you've done some spectacular interviews, so please come and try our shows. They're all on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, YouTube. Give them a try, uh, please. And when you're not listening to an episode of Soundtrack Alley, when you're waiting for the next one, listen to one of ours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, one thing that I really appreciate about, about uh, your podcast is um, the, uh, the sound effects that you use and the, oh. the little bits of music. Um, Darren gets credit for that. well that's awesome well you can find my show at um i I post my blog is soundtrackalley.net and then my podcast site is soundtrackalley.podbean.com and then you can find it on itunes google play interesting thing is you can also find it on the amazon echo um Ah. you can now find find podcasts through that because uh it's through the alexa i believe it's called alexa yes so it's really unique how that works and it would be great to have you on my show again as we talk about clash of the titans um (laughs) you won't have to ask us twice (laughs) (laughs) well I'll, i'll look forward to having you um so and also i'd like to thank jillian orwall for my fantastic intro um, that she put together. And so now I'll play the Solon Fleece, the Teeth, the Path, the Cure, Hydra's Teeth, Skeleton's Attack, and what was it again? Scherzo Macabre. Scherzo Macabre. So thank you again and happy listening.
thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take some time to review my podcast on iTunes and also listen to it on Podbean. And if you leave a review or rating on there, it'll help us get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com.